Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, with Daniel Weiss, who is an art historian and museum administrator, an MBA. We'll talk about that. Uh, and is also the author of a number of books, um, including Art and Crusade in the Age of Saint-Louis, uh, Remaking College. You edited that one a couple of years ago during your days as university president. Um, a book called In That Time, uh, and most recently, why the museum matters. Um, now, Dan, uh, I could start off just by asking the question, you know, why the museum uh, matters. But I think the answer to that question is probably going to be particular to the United States because the United States has has a tradition of the museum that I don't know whether it's it's a new departure or whether it's kind of a uh, uh, kind of a purification or. <laughs> you know, a, uh, a variation on this long history of museums. But I guess the place to start would be to ask the question, what exactly is a museum, right? <laughs> I mean, because it's, it seems like um, the kind of museum you're talking about is this sort of enlightenment project of the universalist art museum, right? Um, but there's lots of other things that we now consider museums, right? We have science museums, we have history museums, right? Uh, sports museums, right? Uh, and, and so I guess, you know, we're probably going to talk more narrowly about the kind of art museum that the Metropolitan Museum of Art is, but, um, but what exactly is a museum and how does it differ from an yeah, educational it's a, it's a institution? It, it's a great question, Greg, and it, it's not obvious actually upon reflection what the answer is. It, and let me, before I turn to that specific question, I would say one of the reasons I wrote the book is I was interested in two aspects of the larger question. What is it about museums that matter to people across time and culture? In fact, the museum business has been around a long time in various iterations and in almost everywhere. And then more specifically, to your point earlier, museums in America mean something actually quite distinctive. The American version of museums, particularly art museums, which I know best, are quite distinctive in all kinds of ways that make them different from other kinds of museums. But to your larger question, museums are places where materials, I'd say cultural materials, but it can be broadly read. It can be scientific materials or, or sports objects where we use objects to help us to understand our own history, our own experience, and to connect us to ideas. And that can be in any number of ways. For those of you who have been to the, uh, to the, Ath to Athens, for example, and gone to the Acropolis, is the Acropolis a museum? It's a monument filled with works of art that are very carefully curated that tell a story that preserve a certain cultural moment, and I would argue they are an early version of what museums are intended to do. So there are lots of ways for museums to exist. The Hall of Fame, the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, uh, Massachusetts, is a, is a certain kind of museum, and the Parthenon is a different kind. But in all cases, it has to do with gathering together objects that we use to help us understand our own experience, who we are, where we come from, what matters to us. Now, the early days of the museum, and I don't know whether it would be fair to say that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was the founder of the museum project, or, or would it be Gaius Asinius Polio, who, who I didn't know about? But, but it seems like, you know, those museums were, they were performing some kind of um, national project, right? Where it was either exhibiting the spoils of, of war or, you know, trying to uh, con convey a sense of, of power and, and magnificence. Right. I mean, that, that seemed to be, and even when we fast forward to the Louvre, I mean, it seems like 
this was a project that was in part designed to glorify the the French nation, and it had a, had a very um, powerful political mission, right? Well, to be sure, every museum also is telling its own story. When you show up in front of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York on Fifth Avenue, it's a magnificent building. And there's no question the people who designed that had an idea about their own identity they were trying to project, which is a little bit like what the Louvre was doing and the Parthenon is doing, and that people don't change that much with, rat, it, with that in mind. So there's no question they are intending to promulgate something very specific about who they are and what this museum represents. Uh, yeah, so I think that's, uh, that's an important observation. Well, when we look at a, a museum like the Met, um, you, you talk a little bit about the history of the Met. You talk about John Jay, who was a different John Jay, but, but the other folks who, who did this, what were they, I mean, was it really about how they wanted to define themselves as, as, as donors or how they wanted to sort of articulate a vision for you know, American democracy? Yeah, so every museum has its own origin story. And the Mets one is really interesting because it ties in quite closely to the ways in which this country was shaping its own identity more broadly. John Jay, the grandson of the first Supreme Court of Chief Justice, and a very important figure in his own right, who was a leader in New York City, he was in Paris with a group of other New York leaders, bankers, lawyers, people like that. They ran the city. And they got this idea after spending some time at the Louvre that great cities have great museums. And at that time, this was in the 1860s. New York City in the 1860s was a mixed bag. It was increasingly successful financially. It was industrially important. It was a, a becoming a center of commerce in the world. But it was generally a pretty unpleasant place to live, and it didn't have any real culture. And so their idea was, if we want to be a great city, like London and Paris and Vienna and what have you, we need to have museums. So they got this idea that they would come back to New York and they would build not just a museum, they would build the Louvre, a museum, one of the greatest museums in the world. And what makes that so interesting is they actually had no art. It was just audacious, the idea that they would create a museum out of whole cloth, whereas the Louvre would been, had been under development by kings and queens of France and others for a thousand years. So, uh, but the, the foundational idea was to do something that glorifies the city of New York, that celebrates the democratic ideals of this still new country, and that engages the public in a civic way to have opportunities to learn and grow by seeing art. And of course, if you think about in the 1860s, the average working person, they're not seeing art anywhere. There is no art in their lives, only if they were to come to a museum. So that was a really bold concept that it would be really a great democratizing civic gesture they were building. So how important is it that, I mean, accessibility seems to be something that we, we talk about quite a bit. And, and I think, well, actually, this goes back to Cicero, right, where he said that the, the Romans, um, you know, they, 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 they're not a big fan of um, private, what is it? I forget the phrase. Right. <laughs> what is it? Right. I've written down here somewhere, that right? They should be in the public sphere, not the private sphere. Some version of that. He said it more eloquently, but that was his job. Yeah. But the, I mean, there have been private art collections. I mean, even to this day, right? There are private art collections and there are certain collectors yeah. that don't share their art with the public. And in fact, there's a lot of art probably sitting in vaults outside of Geneva airport. Right. Okay. Uh, but, 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 but the idea is to, to make it so that anybody can access it. And I think until fairly recently at the Met, 
there wasn't even a, an admission charge to to get into the halls of the Met, right? Well, it was pay as you wish. So uh, that that is, uh, people could pay anything they wished to pay, but they were supposed to pay something. So I, I think that, that there were conflicting objectives in the founding of this museum. On the one hand, they wanted working people to come to the museum to see the collections, but they weren't willing to be open on Sundays, the only day these people had off, because that was the day that they were supposed to give over to uh, their faith. And so there were all these debates when, whether or not there should be an admissions charge. How do you facilitate access? Interestingly, it was part of the core principle of the museum at the beginning that, that it was to be a place for everybody. But they didn't go out of their way to make mm-hmm. it easy for people to use the museum. There was, for example, no good signage outside the museum for many, many years. So if you didn't know what building it was, then you wouldn't necessarily know how to find it or get inside. We've done better in recent years. But that was, in theory, an objective right from the start, but it wasn't always executed perfectly. Yeah, I grew up uh, very close to the, the barns in its original incarnation. And, you know, I think oh, yes. the, the mission was to, I think, working people, right? That was the idea, you know, to be yeah. the, the museum for the working people because the Philadelphia Museum was seen as sort of, you know, snobby and so forth. But of course, what happened over time was that, you know, it wasn't working people that were going there. It was, um, you know, mainline uh, housewives for the most part, you know, my mother spent a lot of time there and brought me there as a kid. Um, yeah. and, and it seems like th- there's almost this inevitable pull towards preferential access for, for the elite. I mean, is that, is, is that, is that inevitable or do we need to constantly push back against that? And, you know, well, I think every museum in particular, American museums that depend on philanthropy. And that's one way in which American museums are different from other museums is that they are, for the most part, funded by the community through philanthropy. Any museum or institution that depends on revenue from people who are going to give it money tends to cater to them, that they find ways to make it easy for those people to visit, to feel supported, to feel appreciated, because ultimately their lifeblood depends on that support. So I think if you want to be an institution that's genuinely accessible to the public, you have to fight for that because the easy thing to do is to cater to those people who make your life possible and not necessarily to the people whose mission you're serving. So in recent years, most museums are very self-conscious about that and they want to be open and available to everyone. Well, but you have to think about how to do that. So, I mean, you've been a university president and also uh, running a museum like this and since you have an MBA, I guess I can ask you this question, right? Um, who's Who are the customers, right? I mean, every organization has to have customers. And certainly at, at the universities, we, we, we started to speak in, in the language of, of customers. I mean, I don't think we, we did this, you know, in previous centuries. But but now, you know, we, we talk about our customers. And sometimes it's the students that are the customers. Sometimes it's the recruiters that, that are the customers. Sometimes it's the right. faculty that are the customers. So. You know, how should we, right. should we be even thinking in terms of, of, of customers when we think of a museum? I would use different language because I, I think that the concept of the customer is not raw, but a customer, when we think of the term customer, we're thinking of a, pre, a fairly straightforward transaction where you're, you're giving something, you're giving money and you're getting something. I think in terms of stakeholders and a museum like ours, any museum has a variety of stakeholders. There is the public the people you want to come and see your, your collections and appreciate them. They may pay admission fees or they may not. It depends on the policy of the particular museum. There is the city government 
almost every museum has some relationship with the city it inhabits that is complicated. Our, in our case, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the actual building is owned by the city government. They don't own the collection and they don't oversee it, but they own the building. So we have had a partnership with the city for a long time. There are uh, other stakeholders in the community. There are experts who, are, who study the materials in your museum. They're a different constituency than, than, say, the general public. There are philanthropists, the people who support us financially, and there are many kinds of those. There are people who give us tens of millions of dollars, and there are people who give us hundreds of dollars. And all of those gifts matter to our well-being. So when I think about mission-driven institutions, which is a category I would use, for universities, hospitals, museums, places like that, that are nonprofit. We have many different stakeholders uh, as opposed to, say, customers. And we have to think about how to engage each of them in, in the right way. Well, I mean, I think one of the dangers of thinking in terms of customers is that, you know, we like to say the customer is always right. And, you know, with these kinds of institutions, um, you know, that that's potentially dangerous. So, you know, you talk a lot in in the book about some of the challenges that museums are facing right now, uh, including pressure to become more, more accessible and, and more uh, contemporarily relevant and to think about the impact that it makes on, on the community. Um, are, are these things necessarily in, in, in conflict? I mean, to, to be accessible, does that mean that you have to kind of please the, the crowd and provide the crowd with, with what, they, what they want? Um, you know, you, you talk in the book about some of the blockbuster exhibitions. And I remember going to see King Tut when I was a kid, right? You know, that was a, that was a fantastic exhibit, but, but it seems like, you know, museums are spending more and more time focusing on things like, you know, fashion and, 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 and things that might appeal to, to a wider audience. Is there a danger in, in, in doing that? Um, is, or is, is that a necessarily a complementary, you know, piece of, of any modern museum now? I think that the art to doing that well is to holding different things in balance. There are a series of fundamental tensions that go into running a museum that need all to be managed in ways that you're, you're able to realize your mission in the real world in the moment you're in. And so that means, in part, if you want to be an accessible institution, for example, and we do, most museums would say, absolutely, that's what we're here for. We want to be accessible. You need to find a way to meet people where they are. If all we were to do is to say we have, we're having a series of very scholarly exhibitions on materials that most people don't know anything about, we're not really fulfilling our mission. We want to make sure that people who don't know a lot about art, but who might find that the world of, of art is inspiring to them and enriches their lives, we want to meet them where they are so they come. And that's a complicated set of strategic questions. How do you do that? One end of the continuum is you pander to them. You, you, you give them whatever you think is going to get them to show up. At the other end of the continuum is to kind of lecture at them, to show them like in school that we're going to show you what you need to know. The right answer is, is in between. If you're only ever giving people what they want, what they think they want, you're not likely teaching them very much. That's more like entertainment than what art museum, what museums do. We, we certainly are in the business of giving people joyful experiences, but we also want them to have intellectually enriching experiences to grow, to learn, to discover. And to do that, you have to give them opportunities to learn new things. So the art of doing museum work thoughtfully is reaching out to people in ways that invites them in, that is not threatening or intimidating to them, but allows them also at the same time to learn new things. 
And the best programmers, the best curators and educational people know how to do that really well. Well, th that means also, presumably, there's, there's going to be some element of discomfort, some element of, of challenge, right? Some, some things about the exhibits. I mean, there's been all sorts of controversies in the last couple of years about exhibits. And I'm thinking of you know, Philip Gustin and others to where the exhibits have been pulled um, out of concern that they may make some people uncomfortable, that they um, may be misunderstood. Um, you know, is, is there a, a better way to, to deal with the possibility of being misunderstood? I mean, does, it, does that sort of speak to the failure of museum directors and executives uh, with respect to how they can communicate with the public? Is, is it a, do, we, do we need to do a better job of communicating to the public? Well, I think communicating is, is one of those skills that you can never get perfect. It's difficult to communicate any message to a very large audience because people are listening in different ways and have different points of view. And in a world where paradoxically we have an infinite number of ways to communicate with people, it's hard to reach them because there's so much noise. So it's not always obvious how you communicate effectively. I think the role of museums is to present material, ideas, content in ways that engages people in meaningful learning experiences that sometimes might offend. And there's nothing wrong with that. I talk a lot about that in the book. I think if, if our objective is to present programs only that everybody likes and nobody ever finds challenging, we're not likely to teach them very much. So we're not likely to go very far. So we need to be thoughtful about how we, we make clear the agreement we hope to have with our visitors. You're welcome to come. We want you to experience this. We hope that you'll learn. And it's perfectly okay if, you're, if you don't like something. You can turn and walk away or you can write a letter to us or you can publish your own article or lots of ways to express your concern. But when museums are preoccupied with not challenging anybody, the odds are that they're not doing meaningful work. Well, there's, there's some people would critique museums for having what we might think of as a um, preservationist impulse, right? Where anything that, that's old is, is worthy of, of, of preservation. Um, I mean, is, is that part of the, the job of, of the museum to be sort of a, uh, a temple to the past to some degree? Well, all museums are repositories of something. Whether you're the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, or the Metropolitan Museum of Art, that uh, the museum concept is indelibly linked to the idea that objects are being collected, curated, preserved, exhibited, studied. That's what we do. And so the question is, what should we collect? What constitutes meaningful material that should go into our care? Museums take very seriously any object that they do accession, which is the technical term for something that they officially collect, that they need to take care of it and conserve it and make sure that it lasts forever. So if we're, if we're collecting, say, textiles, say, clothing from the 18th century or older, we need to have very high levels of expertise to keep them fabrics from deteriorating. If we're collecting paintings, which we do, we need to have people who are expert at that. The art of doing this well is not collecting things that are, that are not meaningful to the mission of the museum or that ultimately are not of historical importance. So a good curator in a good museum staff gives very rigorous thought to whatever we accession because we're, taking, we're making a significant commitment to take care of that object until the end of time. And that's a big deal. So 
Uh, that doesn't mean we don't deaccession things sometimes when we don't no longer want them. But that's not a regular practice. The regular practice is thoughtful acquisition. Well, look, I mean, there's museums like the Holocaust Museum, and, and I went to this museum in, in Ireland, which is the Museum of Irish Immigration. And, you know, there, obviously, they have objects which are not meant to be objects of um, of esteem or of worship. But it seems like in the Encyclopedic Art Museum, I mean, the the decisions as to what to exhibit, I mean, this is necessarily normative, right? It's necessarily saying these are the the objects that are more worthy than the ones that were not chosen for, for, uh, for exhibition. Right. And, and I think, so, so that's, that seems to be a, a locus for quite a bit of contestation and, and, and debate in particular, right. The emphasis on yeah, sort of, that's true. Yeah. I think, sorry, I think that's true in every museum, including the Holocaust museum. They have to make decisions about what kind of materials do they want. They, they may want to, collect everything they can collect from a particular region of the world related to the Holocaust. But what they decide to exhibit is to tell stories in ways that's compelling. And they're looking for what are the best objects that are the most arresting and the most important. And our museum does much the same thing. We want to, and every, by the way, every art museum has a different strategy. If our museum was dedicated to leading edge contemporary art, which it isn't, we do that, but that's not our main thing. But if our museum was dedicated only to that, we may be far more willing to take risks and collect the works of artists that most people never heard of who are brand new because we think that they're doing something important at the leading edge of cultural uh, artistic creation. And, but the Met is more of a canon. When, when something goes into the Met, there is the judgment being made that is joining the canon of art history for our global civilizations in ways that represents a serious commitment to preserving it and keeping it forever. And we think about that when we acquire things. Well, and it's definitely telling a story too. And it's a story of, you know, Western art for, for the most part. I mean, uh, you know, is that, is that necessarily uh, a byproduct of the history of the collectors who have contributed to the museum? Is it necessarily uh, a function of our ability to access these items or is, is that, an historical artifact that that we need to to rethink. I mean, is it possible to have a, a museum that represents the, the cultural traditions of of the entire globe in in some representative way? Well, that's a great question. I, I think what any museum has, I'll answer the first question first, then talk about the larger strategy, is always a combination of what they would like to have to fulfill their mission and what they can get. And we would all like to have lots of examples of the paintings of, of Leonardo da Vinci, but there are only 14 of them in the world and they're all spoken for. So we're not going to get one. That's not how it works. And so you, you, you always have a wish list of the kinds of things you want, and then you live in the real world and what you can get. The other question is for large museums like the Louvre or the British Museum or the Metropolitan Museum here in New York, what is our actual serious ambition? Our, I can tell you at the Metropolitan, our ambition truly is to collect as much of the cultural production of the finest examples of it, of all cultures across all of time. So there, if we think about recorded history, of course, human history goes back hundreds of thousands of years, if not longer. I mean, cultural human history. But what we think about in terms of cultural history is more like 5,000 years. 
with the advent of irrigation and settlements and cities and all of those things that happened three to four thousand years, three to four thousand BC, so five or six thousand years ago, we started gathering a lot of stuff. So our goal is to collect as much as we can of the best examples of the art of all of those cultures around the world since then. Of course, when you think about that in a serious way, and we're the most successful museum of its kind in that way in the world, almost all of those cultures are not represented here. There's too many of them. We have examples of Tudor England and colonial America, and you can name all those things we have, but there are many, many examples of cultural production we don't. And so it's an ambition, but it is never going to be fully realized. Our goal is ever increasing access to more cultural material across all of the dimensions, time and space, uh, with the idea that we have representation mm -hmm. of much of the cultural diversity of the world and of the human civilization. But it's not easy to do it all. There's too much. Well, I mean, there's a lot of talk about uh, putting art back kind of where it came from, right? I mean, there's, you know, where a lot of this work comes from, there's some shady uh, provenance associated with a lot of these works. And, and I guess this brings up the bigger question, which is, you know, when you go to a museum, you're oftentimes seeing things completely out of context, right? I mean, they would go to churches and, and rip out the panels, you know, you have frescoes that are taken off walls. Um, and, you know, this, as an historian, you know, I would prefer to see all of this stuff in its original setting, in its original context. Um, but in, in some ways that's, that's less democratic, right? Because that requires that you have the budget to, you know, travel to all of these, these places, whereas bringing it to a central location makes it available to, to more people. Um, you know, when I was in Italy, I remember going to this museum and they had all of these amphorae and I, and I thought, wow, any one of these would be the centerpiece of a museum and, you know, somewhere in America. And yet here they just have hundreds of them and, and nobody even seems to, seems to care. I mean, they don't even have a security guard guarding these things. Um, to, to what extent is, is, how do you, how do you deal with that trade-off of, you know, ha keeping things where they have the most historical context and, and providing access to these items for the largest number of people, particularly people who are you know, far removed from where, where these items might've come from? Well, there's no question there's importance and value in both approaches. If, if there were no art located in the places where it was made and all of those churches and all of those great monuments had no art associated with them, if you went to the Acropolis in Greece and there was nothing there but a pile of rocks, you would miss some of the majesty of what that site was intended to accomplish. Uh, on the other hand, if these objects were all in the places where they were originally created, then most of the people of the world would never see them. And one of our missions in an art museum like the Met is to give people the opportunity not only to see great art, but to see great art of the world, which the more people can learn about cultures other than their own, and they can walk through the galleries of a museum like the Met and see that throughout recorded history, human beings all over the planet were interesting, sensitive, and thoughtful that it might increase our own respect and tolerance and even empathy for other people. And, and that is one of the, we talk about museums as being democratizing places. Part of that democratizing ideal is to understand and appreciate the value of pluralism in culture and in life. And the museum experiment allows people to see all of that. We didn't have any objects here because they were all in their original locations. We would be a very provincial world because people would only know about their stuff. They wouldn't know about anything else. 
And that would lead to more violence, more intolerance, more tribalism than we have today. So I think many people who work in museums, myself included, take very seriously the value and the importance of allowing people to see things that extend beyond their own horizon. Well, I think this gets to the heart of the book, right? The book is called Why, Why the Museum Matters. And, and I think you're making the point that it's, it's almost like a secular temple in which these, these conversations can, can take place. Um, but I think a lot of people would insist on a different justification, right? I mean, it seems like people need a justification that makes the museum must make the world a better place, but they, they have maybe a narrower vision of, of what that means to make the world a better place. I mean, is it, is it making the world a better place by making individuals better? What, how, how can the museum justify itself in, in a world where it seems the justifications are pretty, you know, there's some pretty demanding people out there who want to come up with, a, with, with more narrow de- justifications? Well, I would say, so if you were to ask me, how does the museum make the world a better place? I would say, ideally, it creates better global citizens Mm -hmm. because the more people learn about other cultures, the more respectful they are, and maybe they'll be less inclined to go to war with them, or they might be more inclined to try to learn more about why a point of view that they hear is different from their own because they're seeing something about this other culture that might give them pause that might give them the opportunity for reflection and respect. So it makes for better global citizens. That's one reason. Another is it helps other cultures to allow their own achievements to be seen and celebrated across cultures. And indeed, in the ancient Greek world, here's a good example. I don't know if you've ever been uh, to the, uh, the city of Delphi, which is uh, a, a, it's one of the great sites in the ancient Greek world. And it was where all the Greeks from all over the world who were constantly at war with each other, all the time, the Greeks were at war with each other. They would all go to this religious sanctuary in this special place in the world where they would pray together and have religious rituals together and not fight each other when they were there. And in this place, each of these nation states had their own little museums. They had these monuments and treasuries filled with art that they would use to show other people what they had. And the idea was the more they saw what each other was making and doing, the more they would appreciate and respect each other. And it's the same idea here. So part of what museums do is they help to allow us to operate across cultures. And then there's economic advantages. Museums attract tourists. They generate revenue. You don't only have to have museums in New York City. There are, there are 35,000 art museums in the United States, or I made that number up, but it's close, and tens of thousands of them. And each one of those cre- contributes something to the local economy. They also provide people an opportunity to come together to create it and run it. All of these museums, the Met included, are run by the community. So the more you have these kinds of organizations that knit people together and give them common cause and common purpose, shared purpose, the better off the community is going to be. So I think there are lots of reasons why museums make the world a better place. Well, I mean, whenever I visit any place, I go to the museums. I try to go to as many museums as possible. And there, there's something about the physical physicality, right? The location specificity of these museums. But, you know, in today's world, do, should we think more broadly? I mean, is, is it necessary that there be a physical temple that one visits? I mean, certainly at the university, 
you know, we're starting to think that the physical location of the university is kind of less important and that we may be able to carry on our educational mission in, in ways that are divorced from specific uh, a physical classroom. Well, here we are doing this podcast together and we're in different cities in the United States and we're working together virtually. We all learned in the last few years that this is an extraordinarily valuable tool that most people can navigate pretty effectively. So it begs the question, does this sort of technological capability limit or reduce the value of museums in our society? And I think, interestingly, the answer is no. On the one hand, it allows us to reach people more effectively. We have all kinds of, of programs that allow people all over the world to look at our collections and participate in our programs, many of whom will never come to the Met. Never. They'll never come to the United States, but they, they, they go to our website all the time. We have schools and, and uh, all over the country that use our content in their classrooms, which is a great thing. But I think human beings now and always have a very strong connection also with the real thing that it's, it's different from the virtual thing. And when you want to study a work of art, it's one thing to look at images of a great masterpiece painting that can be very good photographs. It's quite another to be standing right in front of the object itself that was made by the, the artist who produced it. And what we have found is that there's a growing number of people who use our programs virtually, but it is not reducing the number of people who want to experience our objects directly. Mm -hmm. And I think you refer to the Met, or at least its founders thought of it as sort of a, a department of, of knowledge and it, it had an educational uh, purpose. Um, but, you know, universities also have art history departments and they educate people in the veneration of, of art and understanding of art and promoting these conversations. I've always wondered why aren't museums all simply extensions of, of universities, right? I know a lot of universities have their own museums. You know, Stanford just uh, expanded its, its collection dramatically in, in recent years. Um, why, why don't universities all, and some universities obviously have uh, fairly robust educational programs and maybe even grant some degrees, but, but considering the overlap in their missions, why aren't universities and museums sort of under the same roof? Well, lots and lots of universities do have their own museums, but even the ones that have their own museums, the great museums like at Yale University or at Harvard University, at Princeton, these guys have big museums that they have built. They don't come close to what we have, not even close. So even there, I used to teach at Johns Hopkins University, which is one of the world's great universities. Every year, I would bring my students to New York to come to the Metropolitan because it was really important that they see and experience the object we're studying directly and at first hand. I think one audience for us, we talked about customers and constituencies before, one audience for the Metropolitan or other art museums are universities, but we have many audiences. We're not just in service to college students, we're in service to elementary school students and senior citizens and visitors from all over the world. So we want, therefore, to make sure that our museums are very accessible to universities. And it's far more cost-effective for a university to come to us than to build their own museum. They're never going to be as good as our museum, and they're going to come anyway. So they don't have to have their own museum, but they do have to come to museums. If you're teaching art history 
in a university setting, you want to be close to museums and all the good ones are, or they make it possible to come to them. Now, I remember when I was a kid, I, I spent a lot of time at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. They, they had programs for, for young people. And also, um, when I was in elementary school, we had sort of field trips to various uh, museums. And that seemed to be an integral part of your grade school education, at least when I was younger. And, and I think there's some evidence that that is sort of in, in decline somewhat as K through 12 educators kind of phase out the, the what's, what's, what doesn't really help you on the standardized tests. Um, it is, is there, I mean, are there consequences to that? Is, is there a way to, to reverse that? What, what, what does the, I mean, the Met has a robust program for uh, K-12 students in, in New York City, right? Yeah, it, you're, you're exactly right. It is a deeply regrettable development in our country that as funding levels diminish for education, they always cut cultural programs first. It's music and art that are the most expendable. But the, cost of, the consequence of that is if young people don't have a meaningful experience in a museum, they're much less likely to have one later. So we have learned from experience, for example, that we, if we can get young children to come to the museum and have a good experience, and they learn how to go up the stairs and where to get tickets and how to, how to navigate the place, then they bring their parents and they feel like it's their museum. One of the greatest, greatest revelations for young people is they see this great big monumental palace on Fifth Avenue called the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it's so intimidating. It looks like it's a place that's not for them. And as soon as they learn how to do it, it's not very hard. You go up and you go through the door and here's what you do. Then they can make it a practice to come for the rest of their lives. And it becomes their museum. And we've seen this again and again. That's why we spend very significant resources and make great effort to bring school children here when they're young, give them a good experience, show them how it's done. Because once you have them once or twice, you can have them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, but I, you know, we see... For instance, other places of public gathering, like churches, you know, they're they're increasingly becoming empty shells, right? And you see churches being converted into you know yoga studios and dance clubs and so forth. Do you, do you think that museums are in, in danger of suffering the same fate? Right um, now, look for some of us, it, we might welcome fewer crowds in the museums. I certainly like to go to. Museums. I love the little museums like the the Gardner and the Phillips and you know the Frick and and you know go in there and and bring a book and, and sit there and, and read uh, and it would nice it'd be nice to have fewer people but but that that seems like that that would that would be a that would be a shame is is there any danger of of that happening uh, and if so how can how can we counter that I mean one way to counter it is to as we discussed earlier you know try to create content that is appealing to people whose preferences have changed, but can the museums do anything to encourage curiosity about the types of art that they have collected and that they cherish? Or is this, is this something that has to go beyond the universe, beyond the, beyond the well, museums? There's a great, there's a great paradox in, embedded in your question. And that is your, your question is, is there a way in which museums can, can last forever and make sure that people want to use them. But we all live in the society that sustains us. And so if we went on a trip back to Athens, to the Parthenon, it, when that was built in 440 BC, 
It was one of the greatest buildings ever built by one of the most powerful and celebrated cultures of all time. And they lasted about another 25 years before they were overrun by the Spartans. And eventually that monument fell into disuse. And eventually it was used as, a, as an ammo depot in wars in the 15th and 16th century. Every civilization, very sadly, comes to an end. So the question is, how long will our museums last? As long as our society sustains them. And in order for our society to sustain them, it has to be a healthy society. We have to have the resources to put into museums. And... Who knows how long the American experiment will last? Are we going to last another thousand years or another 50 years? I don't know, but I can tell you this, that when we walk through museums like the Met, we see examples of great cultures and civilizations throughout time and history, all of which are now gone. The Egyptians lasted 3,000 years, one of the most powerful forces in the world, but that culture and civilization in the ancient world no longer exists. So to your question is, how long will museums last? As long as we last, and as long as we value that. We, we live within the, the communities that sustain us. And when they lose interest, or they move on, or new governments are formed, all bets are off. But in the meantime, we're going to fight for them. Well, you, you talk about some of the financial challenges. You talk about this, this cost disease. And I think the cost disease is, is matched on the other side by you know, revenue challenges. Um, the Met had to abandon its its pay what you want um, policy because people stopped paying. I mean, what what do you suppose was 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 behind that? I mean, you know, did you try? Were there any A B tests around you know signage to try and get people to to contribute more? Did you did you try you know Q R codes and Venmo? I mean, what? I'd I'd be curious to to know what you guys discovered when you dug into why the contributions were going down. We didn't really figure out exactly why people were paying less. The issue you're describing is over a 10-year period, we studied it, and the amount people were paying declined dramatically than from what they had before. And it could be greater cynicism about institutions, that there's no question that those of us of a certain age have seen over the last several decades the ways in which our institutions of all kinds have let us down. And young people today, for example, seem that they have less veneration for institutions just because they're institutions, whether they're universities and museums or governments. And as a result, it may be a part that people just felt less inclined to support an institution that uh, maybe they didn't think it needed the money. We have seen during the same period the rise of social media and technology, and maybe people had a different point of view about what the museum experience should be. We don't really know, but the idea was in the first place that people would pay what they thought they could pay in order to support the institution. And after a while, many people who, who have resources just decided they didn't want to pay. And then begs the question, if the museum is owned and run by the community, we're not owned and run by the government, we're owned and run by the community, then who should pay? If you want it to be free, Greg, then who should pay? We have to pay the curators. We have to pay the heat bill. We have to get the roof fixed. And I think that's the question we confronted. In my view, if the institution is run and owned and sustained by the community, that it is the community that should pay one way or the other. And there are lots of ways to do that. So we tried to come up with an approach that was equitable and fair, but that placed the burden on everyone who uses us. Now, you mentioned the, the fragility of civilization, and, and you say also that the museums are uh, a soft target. Um, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I was referencing, I think, the idea that 
museums represent something in society where there's a, on the one hand, there's great love for them, that the reason we have so many visitors come is because they want to come. People come from all over the world to visit museums. They really care about them. And they're welcoming places that everyone treasures and they're easy to come to. So if you want to make trouble, if you want to protest or do something that is destructive, museums are places where you can actually hurt people or you can hurt feelings. You know, the, these recent environmental protesters in Europe who are throwing soup and other kinds of liquids on paintings in great art museums throughout Europe, uh, they were picking those objects precisely because they were beloved by so many other people and they could get in the building. You can't walk into the White House and pull a picture off the wall. You can't go into Fort Knox and set fire to the money. But you can walk into an art museum and do damage to priceless objects. So we're a soft target in the sense that we're here to be welcoming and to engage the public. And bad actors can do things in museums as a result of that mission. Right. And so some of the challenges, I think, for the universities, I mean, for the museums, rather, have come in from different directions. So there's, there's recent movement where employees of the museums have taken issue with some of the curatorial decisions of the of the uh, administration um and and so uh, you know i think that we could think of that as maybe pressure coming from maybe less educated uh, direction but then you also have these protesters uh and they're coming from maybe a place of kind of higher education um you know, but they do have one thing in common, which is they're they're sort of challenging the the mission of 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 the museum and advocating maybe a slightly different mission. Do do you think you have to address those separate challenges differently? Uh, I mean, if 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 the employees of the museum itself are are unhappy with the museum's decisions, I mean that it seems like it seems like a failure of articulation of the mission to some degree, right? Well, it depends on what they're upset about. It, 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 the museum is, among other things, a workplace. So if the staff are not happy with certain aspects of the workplace, those are the kind of problems that any organization yeah. that hires people has to deal with. Then there are issues that they may have with our program or our mission or decisions we're making around the content of what we do. And that can happen. But I think I don't concern myself so much with who's doing the protesting as how the protesting is done. Let me say this. Museums absolutely should be places where people can disagree and debate and protest, just as universities should be places like that. If we can't bump into each other and debate each other and argue with each other, then we, again, are not going to learn very much. And I think we're seeing evidence of that in our society today, where we are fundamentally losing the ability to debate across difference. Look at our Congress. It's embarrassing. They, they, they're incompetent as advocates in a thoughtful way across difference, where they can learn from each other and, and produce legislation that makes sense. So we have an obligation in places like our museums and our universities to model the ability to, to debate and discuss more effectively. Within that context, I think protesting is absolutely a good idea. But I have rules. You are, if you want to have a protest about something we're doing, you don't have the right to disrupt the experience of other people. You don't have the right to damage the institution. So there are various ways we let people or, or allow them to do it whatever they want in, in the way of protesting, as long as they're not damaging the art, diminishing the institution, or impeding the rights of others. And their, their ideas have every right to be heard. 
in the in those contexts. And I think we should celebrate that. Well, you referenced Jonathan Rauch in the book, and you know he has this idea of the constitution of knowledge, and and he references universities and um, and journalists. He doesn't he doesn't reference museums. I mean, should we think of of museums as an extension of that constitution of knowledge, as places where totally. a certain type of knowledge, aesthetic knowledge, is is promulgated? Absolutely. When you think about the number of places in our society where people can come together genuinely to learn from each other and to debate, museums are among the most important. Universities are too, but universities aren't there for everybody. They're there for the students and the faculty. Museums are there for everybody, whether it's a science museum or an art museum. So I think the, the idea that we are public forums dedicated to the advancement of knowledge and discovery we may not be building rocket ships, but we're advancing knowledge and the same methodologies that we bring to testing ideas, debating them, disagreeing with each other, examining evidence, obtains in the humanities as it does in the sciences. And museums should be places where those ideas are taken seriously. Now, you talked about when you first uh, saw the IMPEI uh, pyramid at the Louvre, that it was uh, a little bit disturbing to you, right? But now you appreciate it because it, it makes access to the museum much easier for a larger number of people. What, what would be, what would, what do museums today have to do to provide greater accessibility? Um, is it, is it, a, it's presumably not as much a question of architecture and, and more a question of, of delivery, right? I mean, how, what, what do museums need to do to reach a broader audience? Well, I think it's many things. If we genuinely want to be a place that everyone feels comfortable to visit if they like, we have to make sure in the first instance, physically, it's easy to get in the building. And, and there are people who have mobility issues. It's a, it's a real thing. You have to be able to get in the building. And many, many buildings that were constructed years ago don't have those kinds of accommodations. And I'll give you an example. Um, earlier in my career, when I became the, uh, the dean of uh, the School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins, I wanted to make my campus more accessible. And it was a place filled with steps and all kinds of things. And I thought, so maybe we'll spend a million dollars to try to make everything more accessible. And we, we had a consultant come and they came back with a bill of $50 million to make every building accessible mm -hmm. in the ways it should. So that sort of thing, you have to take that seriously. So one issue is physical accessibility. But I think more important is what you said. You have to signal to people that they're welcome, and you have to put programs together that they can understand and appreciate. That doesn't mean dumbing anything down at all, but you might be bringing people into the museum who don't know anything about art, who wish to learn. So we can have thoughtful programs that are exciting and whatever that, it, that engage that. If you don't have content they can connect to, they ain't coming back. So I think it's doing both of those things well and being mindful of who it is that we're here to serve. Now, one one last point that you make in the book is the the challenge faced by, say, um, un, unpalatable donors. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and I and this goes back a long way. I mean, look, Napoleon was uh, kind of un, unpalatable in his own way, and and, uh, and now we've got Sacklers and we've got others who, um, you know engage in, in behaviors that, that we, we don't approve of. And then we've got companies, right? So Philip Morris, I think, was a benefactor of the arts for, for, for many years. And, you know, and, and folks don't do this without at least some partial 
aim to bolster their reputation. And and in some ways, the, the universities, I mean, the museums, I keep saying universities because there's so many similarities here, right? But the, there the, are. the museums are, are sort of selling this legitimacy to some degree when they take money from these donors. How should we, th- I mean, how should we think about that? I mean, the people that we built statues to 100 years ago are no longer worthy of our respect. And, and the people who donate money are you know, no longer worthy of our respect. So how, should we, do we, do we tear down those statues? Do we rip down their names off the buildings? I think that uh, it's an important question. Institutions that depend on the support of the public for that to, to exist, like most museums in this country and many universities too, I don't think we should be in the business of rigorous social acceptability criteria that Greg LeBlanc wants to give us a million dollars and I don't know, let's not take his money because I I think he was up to something we didn't like. That's not our business. Our business is to fund our mission. And that means that we want to gather the resources we can to deliver the value and the mission that we're supposed to deliver. There are, however, exceptions. There's no question. There are donors we would not take money from. If a neo-Nazi group wanted to give us money to have a named gallery, the neo-Nazi gallery of American painting, we would not take that money. We all can acknowledge, all of us, that there are people we wouldn't take money from, no matter what our institution is, or most of us can agree. So the question is, where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line at an investor who who invests in tobacco stocks? Do we draw it at somebody who's a gun runner? Do you do it for somebody... And, and I think the issue for, and I argue this in the book, each institution lives within its own set of circumstances. And therefore, each institution has to figure out where to draw the line. But in my view, we should only draw the line in the most extreme cases because we're not in the business of laundering reputations, that's for sure. But we are in the business of funding our mission. And if somebody I don't like particularly well wants to give us money in order to do something that's important, I'm perfectly willing to take that money as long as it doesn't diminish the institution, even if I'm not a big fan of the guy. So that's, um, there are places, no question. We all know where, where that line should be drawn and we work that through. That's what our trustees are here to help us to do. We use shared governance to discuss those issues and debate them, but we're not a club that is judging people for membership and only the most elite can get to give us money. That's a bad idea. Well, presumably that also applies to the artists. I mean, you know, there are plenty of artists that have led unsavory lives, right? Both contemporary and and historical. Um, and, And it seems, although historical artists, their sins seem to get forgiven, right? After a period of time, maybe a statute of limitations, but Contemporary artists, right. they're, they're very much in the, in the news. Um, how can you honor the art without honoring the artist? Is, is there a way to do that? Well, yeah, I think you're raising a really interesting question. Our job is to collect and study and display important art, even if it was made by bad people. There's great literature, great art that was made by people who are not laudable. The great artist Caravaggio was a convicted murderer. His art hangs all over our museum and every good museum. He was a genius. He was, his work was so important. One issue that in the contemporary world is if you're, if, 
you're exhibiting the work of artists who, for one reason or another, are seen as pernicious in our society, and you're exhibiting their work as enriching them, then maybe you don't want to do that because we're not in the business of trying to make bad people wealthy. On the other hand, we are in the business of collecting and displaying art that's historically important. And sometimes we have art on the walls, even of living artists, that are of people who aren't so great. So there too, we have to draw the line. But I would not want to be too censorious about who's acceptable and who isn't, because as it happens throughout history, a lot of artists weren't always Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. They were, they were sometimes troublemakers. So last question. But they helped see world. Yeah. So last question. I mean, you have an MBA and, and I think this at one point was, uh, you know, extremely rare among museum administrators. I think it's becoming a little bit more, more common and we're seeing it also in other areas where, you know, law firms and hospitals and architectural firms are starting to see people with, with MBAs. Do, do you think that we'll see in the future managers of, of museums, um, come with business education under their belt and not just curatorial or art historical expertise under their belt? Well, I think that however they get that expertise, whether it's through an MBA or some other fashion, running these places is hard. It's complicated. And it is, uh, if we would acknowledge that you have to have a certain amount of expertise to run a pharmaceutical company or a car manufacturer, it, you would say the same about running a large mission-driven institution like a university or a museum. You have to have knowledge and experience that allows you to make good decisions and take care of the collection. I'm mindful of the fact that we have one of the most valuable assets on the planet here. We have 5,000 years of the greatest art of, of human civilization. We need to be good at what we do in order to take care of that properly. So I think an MBA is fine. It doesn't, it's not essential. And if you have a job that requires you to do business leadership work, as I do, you need to know something about it one way or the other, whether it's an MBA or some other fashion. But um, I therefore expect, as you suggest, that there may be more and more people who have such degrees because it's a useful way to get the knowledge you need to be effective. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me. The book uh, is, is really wonderful. It's called uh, Why the Museum Matters. And I think it will, for those people who um, spend a lot of time in museums, it'll give you some, some interesting context. And for those who ha don't spend enough time in museums, I think it will also uh, stimulate some, some curiosity uh, and, uh, and a desire to, to visit these secular temples uh, more frequently. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you, Greg. It was great to be with you. Okay.